Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Happy New Year, everybody. Glad to be back. Glad to have you back with us. I hope you're okay. I hope this COVID Omicron isn't chasing you around your house and making your life miserable. There are projections. Data suggests that it's not going to hang around much longer, but there are people who are questioning that. And yeah, it's a it's a big issue. We have countries uh, approaching their uh, response to Omicron very differently. Canada, the UK, the US, just those three are doing it differently. We're going to start off with the president-elect of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Alika Lafontaine joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Let's talk some about uh, about uh, Omicron and where it stands and what it's doing. One of the really concerning, I mean, deeply, deeply concerning effects of this entire COVID experience is the numbers of surgeries that have been postponed or canceled, medical interventions that have not taken place because people either haven't gone to seek help because they've been concerned or the services haven't been there for them because COVID has taken so much of the healthcare um, uh, infrastructure. There's also a question, we'll do this a little later, but question about just how effective our healthcare infrastructure is and whether this entire experience is teaching us we better do things differently. Anyway, let's talk about it. Dr. Lafontaine, thank you for uh, joining us on the program and uh, best of luck to you and your upcoming presidency of the CMA. You've, you've picked a good year. Yeah, thanks for having me, and uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you got me on that. (laughs) Would you explain to us, please, just exactly what Omicron is doing? We hear politicians, we just heard Premier Ford, a clip from him, Mm -hmm. saying it's spreading like wildfire. What exactly is it doing, and and how do you assess, how does the Canadian Medical Association assess the threat of Omicron versus Delta, for example? Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think this is a really really important question for people to answer as we kind of go through this wave. Um, you know, I, I'm reflecting on how I felt during the very first wave when this whole started, this whole thing started back in March of, of 2020 and just how afraid providers were when it came to this, this new unknown um, disease that, that we didn't know a lot about and just a lot of the, the panic and to some degree the, the chaos that ensued as a result of you know, going going through the, the beginnings of this pandemic and, you know, the impacts of wave after wave. And I, I think it's important to understand that because this is, you know, uh, something that changes over time, uh, not only the virus, but also the people who go through this over and over again, that that, that has as much to do with Omicron as, as anything else. And so people got used to at the beginning of the pandemic to really look towards vaccines as, you know, this uh, this game changer you know, the thing that would end everything and kind of return us back to life as normal. And over time, the virus has changed where the way that interacts with the vaccines uh, has shifted as well. And that's a natural thing that happens with viruses, especially viruses that replicate as, as fast and spread as much as, as something like COVID. And so the, the difference between Omicron and what's happened in the past is, number one, we know a lot more about how COVID operates. Number two, with the Delta wave, the impact on the severity of disease within patients um, is less. We, we do know that with Delta, you know, hospitalizations and transfers into intensive care 
were very, very high. We're seeing promising things out of South Africa and London. You know, the rest of Europe still has to be hit by this. Um, places like Denmark, et cetera, that show that the, the rates of hospitalization may still rise, but that may not necessarily translate into ICU admissions. But the big game changer, I think, when you compare Omicron versus these these other variants than you know, the wild type that, that happened in the past is that it, it just spreads much, much faster. Mm-hmm. And so before we were dealing with, you know, 1% of 100, which is one, you look at 1% of 14 million, you know, the population of Ontario, that's 140,000. Yeah. And so the, the scale of this is getting bigger, although the impacts hopefully will not be as severe as with Delta. So does this suggest that we could be reaching uh, endemic reality with uh, COVID? Because if, if Omicron, or Omicron is not um, as severe as Delta, but it's spreading more rapidly, it's not doing as much damage. And uh, it could be, according to some things, some things I've read, some reports I've read, signal, we hope, um, if not a conclusion, then a transference of COVID to becoming endemic. Yes or no? Uh, every virus eventually becomes endemic. But I, I think the real turning point in when it becomes endemic is the ability of society to manage its impacts. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily how severe the virus is. You know, Ebola is endemic until it's not. Yeah, and true. so in the same way with, with Omicron, we can see that, you know, a slight increase of hundreds of patients within our hospital system brings our hospitals to a screeching halt. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't think we'll reach that endemic phase until the health system has found a way to manage the impacts. Now, are, are we looking at less people getting getting sick and hopefully, uh, you know, becoming impaired or, or dying from this? I really hope that, that that is where the data leads us. But once again, the, the scale is different and our health systems are still getting overwhelmed. So we, we have a bit of time before we get to the endemic phase, but it does look promising. Okay. So let's talk about the healthcare system and the challenges it is facing as a system and the human beings within the healthcare system, doctors, mm-hmm. nurses, uh, first responders. We have huge numbers of missed surgeries and ranges of procedures that just haven't been uh, carried out. People haven't gone even to be investigated because they're concerned. How do you, how do we, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with hundreds of thousands of surgeries missed, cancer patients not getting the surgeries they require? I don't want to be uh, over, over the top here, but it is a, a massive concern. How does the CMA see this? You know, I, I practice uh, as an anesthesiologist, and so I, I work in the OR have for more than a decade, and I, I'm kind of in a, a front seat as far as the impacts this is having on, you know, colleagues and uh, surgeons and, and other folks across the country in the healthcare system. You know, we, we sometimes forget that healthcare resources are a zero-sum game. It really comes down to balance of demand and supply. If demand rises in one part of the health system, supply needs to come from another part. And over the last couple of decades, we've really tried to keep demand and supply as close to each other as possible in order to decrease costs. And I think as a result, with this wave of the pandemic and increased hospitalization, we are having to pull resources from one place to another. And as a result, we have canceled tens of thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of surgeries across the country. Um, one of the things that I think it's, it's really illustrated is that our health system is designed to deal with acute issues. So this is one reason why unvaccinated patients or patients who are vaccinated who've come down with COVID and and need that additional support have not been denied care because the hospital system is designed around that. 
Now, as a result, some of these things that are not as acute but are just as important, you know, someone who has chest pain, if they walk up two flights of stairs, but when they're sitting still, they don't have chest pain, you know, stable angina. Those types of cases don't end up coming for cardiac surgery. They don't end up coming for having their arteries, um, you know, cleared up using angioplasty or, or some of the other treatments that, that happen for a host of other patients. And yeah. I, I think that this is a part that we're really struggling to understand right now. And we, we have two choices, I think, from a public policy point of view. We can either invest more to increase supply, or we can help the public behave differently to decrease demand. Okay. And these are really the only two options available to governments right now. Okay, I have one more question for you. The federal minister of health said yesterday that he believes the time is going to come, may not be now, but the time is coming when the provinces will have to decide to declare vaccine mandates. How do you feel about that? You know, I I think it's important to differentiate what politicians say from what providers say. You know, um, one of the things that is core to the way that we provide health care is to ensure as much choice as possible for the patients that we engage with. Comes from you know deciding what types of treatments to provide to the information that you receive, so you can make you know fully informed decisions. And like I said before, politicians are in a very tough spot where they are realizing that the resources that have been deployed over the past couple of years really have a very small set of answers to solve. And so the CMA has come out talking about you know, mandated vaccinations for healthcare workers. Uh, we stand firmly behind that. Uh, I believe that as a healthcare worker, we have an obligation to minimize the risk exposure for any patient that comes into our care. Uh, we've talked about, you know, mandating vaccination for other, you know, workers who are providing, you know, care within areas that uh, may have vulnerable populations or persons who, you know, are, are unvaccinated as as a way of kind of mitigating those impacts. But politicians are now stuck in a very tough spot. And if it does progress to mandated vaccinations, I, I think it's important for people to really frame in their minds that this comes down to the zero-sum game of healthcare resources. You know, and uh, I'll leave that that decision to politicians. And as I've done through this whole pandemic, uh, I'll comply with recommendations of, you know, public health and you know, the, the direction that our politicians are going to take us. And, you know, we'll, we'll advocate for patients at, at all times. Energy costs continue upwards as the price increase continues to your fuel for your vehicle at the pump as well. There's the carbon tax uptick, which is going to increase the cost of fuel for trucks which deliver your goods. So perhaps some or all of this increased will be passed on to the consumer. Dan McTagg joins us, the president and founder of Canadians for Affordable Energy. How are you, Daniel? I'm fine. Happy New Year. uh, Hopefully it won't be an expensive one, but I think it's not. Well, I just saw um, a response to one of my tweets and... uh, from Victoria, British Columbia, gasoline there, $1.76.9 a litre this morning for regular. Yeah, an all-time record. Uh, I had been predicting Vancouver. Uh, Victoria, however, is a little bit of a different uh, fact. Um, I guess retailers there have decided it's okay to stiff the public for 14, 15 cents a litre as a retail margin. Uh, that's because Vancouver's taxes are 7 cents a litre more than, uh, than Victoria. And if Vancouver today is a dollar seventy-five point nine, Victoria is a dollar seventy-six point nine. 
someone's pilfering the public in and hopefully some listeners here in Victoria uh, to the tune of eight or nine cents a liter minimum. So uh, when we look at the provinces in which we broadcast, and let's go west to east since we started with Victoria and Vancouver. So uh, British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Ontario. Is there, what's the range of, uh, of fuel costs in the, in the five provinces, Dan? So we're looking at BC interiors in the dollar thirty-seven all the way up to the dollar fifty-four range. The uh, dollar thirty-seven Kelowna with the opening of a new Costco, uh, Prince George dollar uh, fifty-four uh, Kamloops, etc. So yeah, if we look at Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, you're looking at about anywhere between a dollar thirty-seven and a dollar forty-one, uh, and of course uh, the the lower mainland we're looking at uh, Vancouver all-time highest prices ever paid. That did O for Victoria at dollar seventy five and dollar seventy six. Of course, here in Ontario, one forty three, uh, Quebec a dollar fifty, uh, and uh, the Maritimes broken up a little bit, dollar forty three New Brunswick, dollar fifty seven in uh, Newfoundland. Uh, that's St. John's a little higher outside, and of course uh, Nova Scotia at a dollar forty. Why? I mean, why the range? Why are we where? Why are we where we're at? I understand the carbon tax, and please fit that into your answer. But why? Yeah, I mean, look, there are different variations in carbon taxes, but it has a lot to do with uh, uh, various taxes. Um, taxes in, uh, if you include the clean fuel standard, which exists in British Columbia, they're paying 17 cents a litre more than the rest of the country. Uh, we'll be catching up to them at some point because the federal Liberals will be uh, imposing that beginning at the end of the year, adding to the scenario that we'll be paying much higher for our fuel diesel prices uh, going into uh, the mid part and end of uh, 2022. Uh, that makes up part of the difference, and of course, uh, depending on the market, um, sometimes, I mean, there are three essential U.S. markets that dictate uh, and determine benchmark prices for Canada. Pacific Northwest, there's a shortage there as a result of a couple of refineries down, that's for Vancouver. There is the Chicago spot market for all of Western Canada, including a smidgen of Ontario, including Thunder Bay. And then there's the New York Mercantile Exchange, some people call it the New York Harbor. That covers uh, really much the benchmark prices that we pay in Eastern Canada. Do you have an idea of where we're going to be like six months from now or a year from now? And I guess what I'm at, what I'm at getting at here is the $2 liter in our future, in our not-too-distant future. Uh, it's going to happen because that's what Ottawa wants. Uh, the federal liberals uh, have us on a collision course to uh, have a carbon tax that will go to $0.38 cents a liter plus HST, GST. Uh, and, of course, on top of that, the hidden carbon tax, the clean fuel standard. By the way, no country in the world has two carbon taxes. They, it's inefficient. Even economists who are pro-carbon tax would tell you that's not the way to go about it. And then we've got a whole host of regulations over and above that. So $2 a litre, inevitable. Not this year, but I think this year we're looking at average prices. Now, that's average. That's including British Columbia and Newfoundland being the, you know, the, the high ones in Victoria and uh, the low ones, Alberta, Saskatchewan to a lesser extent, Ontario and Nova Scotia, we're looking at an average price in Canada this year, 2022, of $1.65 a litre, or a 20 to 25% increase in the price of fuel year over year. Well, we, came, we survived 2021. Here we are the first few days of 2022 looking at increased prices for gasoline and for heating our homes. So before we go further on what it costs us to fill our vehicles, what are we looking at realistically as far as electricity is concerned, or I guess natural gas still exists, what are we looking at as far as realistic price increases for energy, for electricity and natural gas to heat our, heat our homes in 2022? 
Yeah, well, it does depend on the province, but generally when it comes to natural gas and propane, uh, 2022 will be a doubling of the price of uh, mid-2021. So right from the get-go, whatever you were paying, short of the distribution transmission costs, uh, you're looking at a doubling. Uh, electricity, of course, will be fixed rates, but uh, we already know in several provinces those uh, prices are extraordinarily high and uh, much to do with previous government policies. Uh, but, of course, uh, one of the things that has not been lost on anyone looking at why we're where we are in terms of uh, the energy crisis globally, if you look in Europe, you've had many guests on uh, prior to uh, the new year uh, who are experts in this field. Uh, it's coming to Canada, not to the same extent, but when you have 10, 15, 20 percent of banks, financial institutions uh, taking money away from hydrocarbons at the very time in which the world needs more, you can see where you're creating a, a massive gap that not even OPEC can make up. And so for that reason, we're going to be paying a very, very significant price for this uh, unruly and perhaps, uh, to put it very bluntly, uh, this transition to green at a time in which uh, uh, it's certainly not justified. I, I spoke in the last hour with uh, Terry Bro of the Sciences Po in Paris, oil and gas expert at the French Energy Ministry, who was in charge of security and supply for France. And it, we, we talked about uh, the reality in Europe now, where there's debate and fighting over whether nuclear energy is the way to go. Germany is closing its nuclear energy plants, turning back to coal. France is uh, turning back or turning more toward nuclear. And Professor Bro said, essentially, it is a political mess that's been engineered in this manner, and the people of Europe are paying the price for it. So we know in Kosovo there's been uh, rotating um, uh, brownouts. We see the situation in Kazakhstan, which at least in part is because of the increase in, in fuel prices. But, but he said, and uh, in an email to me earlier, he suggested that Kazakhstan and what you're seeing in Europe now could be just the first domino dropping. And will there be an impact on the rest of the world? He said, absolutely, yes. Well, he's right. And, and this is, uh, you know, not lost on anyone this time last year. We're paying a dollar a liter, dollar forty-five, dollar forty-four now. But it does suggest that there has been this, this idea that we can, uh, you know, have these new mandates. And you hear them on insurance companies, financial uh, companies have been goaded into, they've been, uh, uh, you know, uh, derided into believing that we should take away our investments in fossil, fossil fuels. And the reality is that the world is going to need more for the next 20 to 30 years. And that transition to electric vehicles and all these other wonderful things you alluded to at the be- uh, you know, before our break will not happen, not without a, a very large, significant number of people, referred to as the middle class, are badly hurt. And uh, I don't know how this is going to end, but it's extraordinarily short-sighted for the Liberal government, uh, for uh, boosters of green energy who cannot exist without subsidies, massive subsidies, to continue to go to the well, which is drying very quickly at a time in which we don't have the ability to pay off our uh, you know, massive debts that we've incurred over the past couple of years, if not before. So I think, Roy, we're looking at an energy crisis of our own making. This isn't a supply and demand no. issue. This is really, a, a, a you know, a, an attempt to vandalize a very important product that has helped uh, nurture affordability in Canada, and we've simply uh, taken it for granted and uh, looked the other way. We're going to pay for this, uh, and it's a very serious miscalculation, not just because of politicians, but voters who've supported them. Email from uh, Alan Hi, Roy. I have yet to hear anyone really discuss what happens when we're all in electric cars and there's no more gas tax revenue. Where, where's all that money going to come from then? $2,000 license plate stickers? Yeah, well, they're inserting in those cars, uh, you know, uh, data that will let them, you know, tax you on every kilometer you drive. 
but I can't suspect, I can't see that many people will have the ability to do that because they much less buy them without subsidies, only because the entire electoral, electrical infrastructure of this nation will have to be torn up, including your streets, uh, to make way for new transformers, uh, as well as, uh, you know, uh, the ability to produce new electricity. And by the way, if you don't think it's uh, an easy task in the trillions of dollars, Look at the cost overruns of the Muskrat Falls in Newfoundland. Look at the Site C Dam in British Columbia. These are colossal boondoggles. And yet we have people looking the other way saying, oh, no, this is the world of magic and make-believe. We can just let these things happen. No, I, I suspect that uh, apart from the inefficiency and the economic, ecological damage that uh, build, making a uh, EV battery does, I think uh, there is a day of reckoning, and it's going to come in 2022. Hey, so uh, sitting in my chair here, I don't have a major object- objection to uh, driving an electric vehicle. I'm not in any rush to buy one, uh, but I don't object to eventually having to, you know, have, having one in my driveway. So, But my concern, Dan, is as always it's the transition. It's moving from A to B and what happens in between. And it just seems to me, and what uh, Professor Bro told us as well, the infrastructure in Europe is suffering and struggling because they, they've relied far too heavily on quickly, too quickly moving to renewables, and now there's this gap. There's the de- delivery gap, and there's also a supply gap, and they experienced, uh, or 2021, they didn't get the amount of wind they expected, so the wind farms didn't collect as much energy That's as right. they expected. So there's a deficit there. So it's transition from one to the other, but how do you manage, how you manage the transition is what's critically important to every man, woman, and child in this country. We know that EVs are not as efficient as internal combustion engines. We know that they have a much larger environmental impact than internal combustion engines do. If we only look at emissions on the CO2 basis, that is, in my view, a very false uh, and uh, wrong way to approach the environmental concerns. I mean, look at China. Uh, Look at the the labor standards involved with extraction of uh, all of those rare earth minerals, cobalt, and the likes. Look, the world is going to have to produce more using more fossil fuels so that you can have an EV that you pretend to be uh, somehow environmentally responsible. It is not. Uh, you know, the polymers, the resins, uh, the fiberglass, uh, the coating for the uh, for the wiring, uh, the tires and the asphalt you're driving on are all fossil fuels. So I think we've got to stop kidding ourselves and, uh, and grow up and understand and start to deal with some facts. But the reality for me has always been if we mess around with affordability in this country, as we are so clearly doing, uh, the consequences are going to be enormous and they're going to be very, very long-lasting and very painful for the num- uh, large number of Canadians who right now have no idea how bad things really are. Yeah. Political price to be paid to. Here we are, two days beyond the first anniversary of the January 6th, 2021 assault on the seat of the U.S. government in Washington. So one of the questions is, and I've spoken to uh, one of my guests about this previously, as we were leading up to the election, to the 2020 election in the United States, how close is the United States to real inner turmoil? Does it exist already? Is it on the cusp, potentially, as some analysts are suggesting, of uh, uncontrolled response? I've heard terms like civil war and individual states or groups of states attempting to leave the Union, is it that dire? We do know that secessionist movements exist in a number of states, perhaps most notably Texas and California. And maybe the issue, if you're looking for a central issue that gets people energized or gets them talking, gets them emotional, one of the issues is vaccine mandates. And perhaps that represents the catalyst for the emotional uh, response 
um, among Canada's southern and very powerful neighbors. Uh, the poll was Americans reached the tipping point with vaccine mandates. You'll find that at uh, johnzogbystrategies.com, johnzogbystrategies.com, the famous international Zogby poll. The, uh, the podcast of Mr. Zogby and his son Jeremy is real and unscripted. And uh, John's book, or written many, but We Are Many, We Are One. That's a very interesting title, particularly in 2022. John Zogby joins us on the program along with his son Jeremy. How are you, John? Good, Roy. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, good to talk to you again. And please introduce us to your son. Oh, my son and managing partner, now what I'm proud to announce, of John Zogby Strategies, Jeremy Zogby, who's uh, been about this business of polling for many, many years, and uh, we're official, we've officially been in business together now for about five and a half years. So hello, Jer. Hey, Dad. Jeremy, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming uh, on the program with your father. Yeah, this is wonderful. Uh, you know we do that weekly show. We just did this one uh, yesterday, and so uh, this is always fun. This yeah. is always very fun. Real and Unscripted is your podcast. So let me start with this question, and, and, and we can approach it from any number of compass points, I suppose. But um, when, when you look at the, the issue of vaccine mandates in the United States, and it's gone to the Supreme Court now, the, this issue. Is this a lightning rod issue that will, will, will generate uh, discussion or emotional response to the overall question of just how much unity there is in your country? It's bigger than vaccine mandates. Uh, I'll, I'll start this. It's a tipping point. It's a wedge issue, uh, like there are many wedge issues that separate the two sides and reveal to a degree how much distrust there is towards the federal government and frankly towards a lot of um, familiar institutions that folks have counted on for many years. So it transcends just uh, attitudes towards the, the federal government. But it's just one of those things where you mention vaccine mandates, you mention any number of other issues, and automatically there are two sides and, and two different realities, um, that, that two different sets of facts. You know, John, I remember being absolutely stunned when you and I had one of our many conversations in 2020 leading up to the election, and I brought up the issue of uh, divisiveness in the United States that I've never seen before. Most of us in Canada, when we see the United States, we hear the USA, USA chants. We see the waving of the flag. There just seemed to be, for years and decades, this tremendous sense of being American. And it didn't matter whether you were Democrat or Republican, the fundamental position was we're American and America's number one. Sometimes that irritates us, so we have to play hockey against, against you to put you back in your place. So, <laughs> but but, but you, 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 you expressed a really significant personal concern about your country and the emotional state of your country on that broadcast. You still feel that way? I do. Uh, I'm the optimist in the room. Down the road, I think we'll be okay. We're, right now, that we're going through turmoil. And among those wedge issues uh, uh, is the Constitution of the United States and whether it needs to be updated or scrapped uh, and we start all over again. You mentioned at the top of the, uh, your introduction um, 
the notion of secession. It's more than just a couple of states. It's more than left and right. Um, there is just a, a growing sense of not only federal uh, overreach, but a growing sense that, hey, we're a lot better on our own. Um, and I know Jer has some, has some numbers and some thoughts about this as well. Yeah, Jeremy, please share that with us. And you know, we in this country have gone through this in the last 40 years with Quebec secession movements yeah. in 1980, yeah. then 1995. There were put there were there were referenda, and if they had gone the other way, then this country would be splitting up, according to our then prime minister in 1995. But what are your numbers in the U.S. now? Yeah, so I mean, and in, in, at least as far as I've been on board um, officially as a partner, going back to 2016 asking several rounds of this, you've got a, a, a core base of about 40% that have sentiment uh, saying that secession is, is legal, it's justified, and, it, and it, it should not warrant a military in, intervention. And, of course, I mentioned military intervention um, because that's what the Civil War was all about. Uh, it, you know, that, that's basically shades of uh, Abraham Lincoln. So we're still at this point about high 30s. I, I think the, the last time I asked the question in the, this last round of uh, questions, it, it was 37 uh, percent could, could agree to uh, uh, a, a state seceding and, and thinking that that is legal. So, uh, John, as we, as we head toward November and uh, the midterms, what potential does this have to widen whatever gulfs exist within the United States. You talked about not just California and, and, and Texas having secessionist intention. How mm-hmm. potentially disturbing, disruptive, is this midterm election going to turn out to be? Well, you have it on a number of levels. So first of all, uh, within the Republican Party, the Republican Party is split between, actually, they're, it's mainly a conservative party now. There are very few moderate Republicans, but between pro-Trump and and non uh, and anti-Trump folks, and you know that the the Trump people dominate the party, but that in itself will will be two forces fighting for the for the future of the Republican Party, and it'll be bloody. You have splits on the Democratic side as well between the progressive Democrats, Bernie Sanders. Uh, AOC and uh, 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 <laughs> AOC, uh, the the progressive wing and a more moderate liberal wing of the party, and that you know promises to to be quite a fight. Then you get into the general election, and the stakes are about as high as you can get. Whoever controls Congress, then um, you know, gets a chance either to work with Joe Biden or not work with Joe Biden. And no matter what the choice is, it splits the country uh, even more. Today, as we speak, the Republicans are in the ascendancy, and it looks pretty good. But we have uh, 10, 11 months to go before the election. Okay, Jeremy, as you look down the road further to 2024, Mr. Trump hasn't indicated whether he's going to run again. I saw a story this morning that the Democrats are trying to are considering passing legislation, making some sort of legislative effort to make it impossible for him to run again. I think that would be potentially politically uh, very difficult for them eventually. But that 24 presidential election does that, depending on the result, 
have the potential to be another major uh, chasm that, cre- it's, it, that, that is created between them and, and among Americans. Oh, I, I mean, it's, uh, we've gotten used to in this business over the last, I mean, how many elections, calling it the, uh, the, the Armageddon election. I, I see no reason for 2024 to be any different. Only The only wild card, and, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, the only thing that I think could disrupt what is already disruption, uh, being, you know, uh, cycle after cycle, the Armageddon election, the only black swan wild card event could be the rise of some third party candidate. I, I don't see that yet. I don't see that yet, but I'm not going to rule that out. Uh, but it, it's very difficult to see uh, Trump uh, at, at this point not securing the nomination. I mean, he, he bulldozed over everybody in 2016. And uh, it's, it's hard to see someone like Ron DeSantis, who's clearly chasing after the MAGA crowd, to, to be able to um, push Trump out of the way. Uh, I, I want to say one thing, though, because we've been talking about a lot of disunity and no question about it. There is. And, and unfortunately, it's not only coming from the bottom up. It's, it's coming from the top down. The, 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 a lot of the major media outlets on both sides of the aisle are, are using very divisive language. Um, but I, I want to point out a couple poll questions where I'm actually seeing the potential for unity. I don't, I, I don't think it's going to happen. But, the, but it, you're wondering, your neighbor south, and, and can they get their act together? This is where I'll tie that into that you know, wild card notion of a, of a third-party candidate. If there were a third party, a popular third-party candidate that were to arrive on the scene, they would do well with certain reforms. Now, one question I asked was support for term limits for Congress and Senate. 83% of Americans can get behind that. that, that that's what we call a supermajority. That's incredible. Then we extended that question to federal bureaucrats, which you know are, are usually lifers, and still 78 percent. So if you could get some some you know basic reforms, and somebody could jump on that, that could bring a potential for unity. But that's very challenging mm-hmm. in this very divisive environment. See what I don't want to see, and what other my fellow Canadians, the majority of us, vast majority of us, don't want to see. We don't want to see Americans turning on each other. We don't want to see rioting in the cities. We don't want to see states uh, attempting to secede from the Union. Because we don't know what would happen to the world if that were to happen. If the United States suddenly did what the Soviet Union did, but do it violently, that would be within three years. That's a nightmare scenario for for most of us. Really, it's a nightmare scenario for all of us. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we're there yet, but... But, you know, the, the events of January 6th are certainly very, very troubling. Um, and, you know, there's the, even a debate over that now as to whether that was merely a riot or a major insurrection. Um, I, I think it started out as a riot and turned into an insurrection. And it does not bode well for the future. That, that is troubling. Okay, John, you said when we first started talking... You mentioned the Constitution, and if I understood you correctly, you said the Constitution as it is written now. Are we talking about the potential here for a major rewrite or amendment of the U.S. Constitution? Is that what did I hear you correctly? You did. Um, in terms of the potential, not very many people are talking about that. But what we know is that 
the two sides, uh, and I mentioned this earlier, are operating from two completely different sets of facts, two completely different sets of realities. The Constitution is a binding document, a, a, a document that is supposed to bind the people of various states into one national community. We have a breakdown of that national community. And so maybe ultimately what, what happens down the road is that folks say, let's look at this Constitution. How do we build a more perfect union right. from the more perfect union that was established 200-plus years ago? Well, you've done a pretty good job of uh, building a country and building a, an, an incredibly powerful democratic state. It's not at its best at the moment, and we, we wish you well. And you also have a pretty good hockey team, so we'll give you that. Today is the second anniversary of the shooting down of Ukraine Airlines Flight 752 over Tehran. More than 100 of the 176 people killed had ties to this country, to Canada. Meanwhile, Iran continues to ignore deadlines set by Canada and our allies to negotiate a settlement for victims' families. The families also have expressed concerns about the RCMP's level of cooperation with an investigation into the shooting of the shooting down of the aircraft by Ukraine. A ceremony commemorating the victims was held today and attended virtually by Justin Trudeau, Doug Ford, and Toronto Mayor John Tory. Joining us on the program is Mr. Hamed Esmailian. He's a spokesperson for the association representing the victims of families in Canada. He lost his wife and his daughter on Flight 752. Hamed, thank you for coming on the program. It's the second time we're speaking. Deepest condolences to you on your, on your very tragic loss. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. I Iran is ignoring you, victims and families, and uh, they're, they're really just thumbing their noses at you. And the families also, your families and the association also have concerns about Canada's commitment to holding Iran to account. Could you talk to us about that, please? Yeah, the, you know, the behavior of the Iranian regime is clear for everyone who comes from that country. And uh, I remember that from the beginning of this uh, uh, horrific crime, we mentioned uh, to the government that you're not get, you're not going to get any cooperation from them. But I think uh, uh, our government and the other three countries who are involved, they decided to learn it in a hard way. And now, after two years, uh, like two three days ago, they understood that Iran is not going to engage in any negotiation to tell the truth and to uh, uh, like work on justice process for the families. Yeah, and and the RCMP. Can you talk to us, please, about your concern about the RCMP's cooperation or lack of cooperation with the Ukraine investigation? You know, we had we talked to RCMP from the beginning too, and the time that they started the investigation or to talk to the families was like eleven months after the. Uh, after this crime, and they started to take testimonies from the families. But as far as I know, none of those testimonies has been passed to Ukraine, who has the criminal case. RCMP didn't open the criminal case in Canada for the second worst terrorist attack against Canadians after Air India. And this is very sad for me that as a Canadian, now I have to work with Ukrainian prosecutor office to move this uh, uh, criminal case forward. Yeah, so you, you provided testimony, 
to the RCMP, and they have not passed that testimony on to Ukraine investigators. Yes, they didn't. And, you know, there were lots of evidence that we gave to them, like the cell phones, my wife's Apple Watch, and after seven months they said they can't do anything with it. So we had to uh, uh, hire a private investigator to see that all the phones on the aftermath of the crash, they were destructed and they were tampered with. So these are just some samples of what we did with RCMP. And uh, now after two years, still uh, trying to pressure them to open this criminal case, but they refuse to do so. That is really uh, stunning to, to know. Is the federal government staying in touch with you, with the Association with Families at All? Yes, they do. Like yesterday, we had a meeting with uh, Prime Minister, with uh, Foreign Affairs uh, Minister, and with Minister of Transportation, Minister of Immigration. And, you know, they expressed their sympathy for us. But honestly, sympathy is not enough for us. You know, we need, war- we need, we need actions instead of words. So we need to see the time frame, the roadmap, and, uh, you know, the transparency is not perfect here. We don't know what's the next level. If we go to international civil aviation organization, when and how and based on what? Because we are not pleased with a simple apology or we are not pleased with the compensation. We need to know the truth. The truth is the more, more, most important thing for us. Yeah. And, and family members of the association, uh, family members of victims of that shooting down of Flight 752, have been harassed by proxies for Iran, yes? Yes. Yes, they have been, you know, uh, uh, like today, today there was a uh, ceremony in Iran as well. I know that the three family members were arrested for a few hours for just taking photos and videos. And same thing here in the soil of Canada, they threatened the families. And uh, I, as far as I know, RCMP has opened an investigation for foreign interference based on what Iran is doing. Yeah, this is so disturbing to hear, Ahmed, particularly on a date like today, the second anniversary. But it would be disturbing any day to know that you're going through this. You're also not permitted to speak with uh, Ukrainian investigators. Yeah, you know, uh, I had to go to Ukraine on at mid-October because when I got disappointed with RCMP, uh, we had no chance. So. We hope that the Ukrainian investigation team can come to Canada and talk to the families or like a team of association, the fact-finding committee, can go there and share all the evidence and documents that we gathered in the last two years. This is very important to have a criminal court in Ukraine, to have arrest warrants for the perpetrators of this crime, and we continue to follow on that. Yeah, and they're not providing you with any particular information, the Canadian officials, about why they're acting in this matter, I, I gather. Uh, not really. On, on 24th of uh, November, we published our own report. This is the first time of the history of aviation that the families of victims of a, of a disaster like that had to put documents together because we didn't get from the government we didn't get from ikao we didn't get that from any international organization and there are lots of questions that are unanswered and nobody gives us any answer about what happened to flight ps752 who was responsible to keep the sky open and why they shot the plane down 
This is so, again, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. It is so disturbing to hear this, so disturbing. But I'm sure you know that you have the vast majority of the people of Canada on your side expecting our government to do the correct thing, expecting the RCMP to be cooperative with the Ukrainian investigation. And again, Hamed, um, my most sincere condolences, and I know I can speak for everyone listening to this program across the country today. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.